Greetings. Reading from Robert J. Morgan's book, More Real Stories for the Soul. 101 Incredible True Stories to Challenge Your Fate and Strengthen Your Trust in God. Story number 14 on page 36. Recently, I found an old book in a London shop. Memories of the Mission Fields by Christine L. Tingling. Undated. Published in England. It tells of a Swedish missionary, Mr. Tornvall, who arrived in Ping Laing, China, uninvited and unwelcome. The missionary realized he would only be accepted by providing medical help, but he had no training, only one small book and some homopathic remedies. He began with an old woman, nearly blind, who was carried each day to ask alms. At night, she was returned to her hut, where a large stone was rolled across the door to keep out wolves. And there, she had to stay until friends removed the stone the next morning. Tornval stopped daily and treated her eyes with salve. To the surprise of all, her eyes were restored. A soldier was then brought to Tornval with frostbitten leg requiring amputation. I had no instruments except a Swedish pen knife and an American saw, but I boiled them and did the best I could. I had a book on anatomy and I kept it by me during the operation and looked at the diagrams to the leg as I cut. I did it in the veranda and the neighbors gathered around to watch the performance. I had no ether or chloroform, but used a hot salt solution as a palliative. The operation was successful and afterwards the young soldier dried his disembembered leg in the sun so he could carry it home to his mother. But the city fathers, unimpressed, called a public meeting to discuss driving Tomball from their boundaries. The tide turned when the old beggar woman faced the crowd. Do you want good people in this city or not, she demanded. All of you know me. You know that I was almost blind, and now I see this man has helped me. Her words, strangely similar to those in John 9, moved the city, and Tornval was allowed to stay in Ping Laing, where in time he established both a church and a medical center. It's often said God is not as interested in ability as in availability. He can do amazing things with one small book and homopathic remedies in the hands of of a committed soul. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, wonderful. Our next story is, is John Craig, number 15. It says, John Craig was born in Scotland in 1512, studied at the University of St. Andrews, and entered the ministry. While living in the continent, he found a copy of Calvin's Institutes, and in reading them, found himself becoming a Protestant. As a result, he was arrested by agents of the Inquisition, taken prisoner to Rome, and condemned to death at the stake. On the evening of August 19, 1959, while awaiting execution the next day, dramatic news arrived that Pope Paul IV had died. 
According to custom, the prisoners in Rome were thrown open and the prisoners were temporarily released. Craig took advantage of the opportunity, escaping to an inn on the city's outskirts. A band of soldiers tracked him down, but as the captain of the guard arrested him, he paused, looking at him intently. Finally, he asked Craig if he remembered helping a wounded soldier some years before in Bologna. I am the man you relieve, said the captain, and providence has now put it into my power to return to kindness. You are at liberty. The soldier gave Craig the money in his pockets and marked out an escape route for him. As he made his way through Italy, Craig avoided public roads, taking the circuitous route suggested by the captain and using the money for food. But at length, Craig's money was exhausted, and so were his spirits. He lay down in the woods and gloomy considered his plight. Suddenly, the sounds of steps in the brush was heard, and Craig tensed. It was a dog, and its mouth a purse. Craig waved the animal away, fearing a trick, but the dog persisted, fawned on him, and left the purse in his lap. Using money from the purse, Craig reached Austria, where Emperor Maximilian listened to his sermon and gave him safe conduct. He thus returned to his native Scotland, where he preached Christ and abetted the Reformation until his death many years later at age 88. Amen. Our next story is story number 16, Just As I Am. Just as I am. She was an embittered woman, Charlotte Elliott of Britain, England. Her health was broken and her disability had hardened her. If God loved me, she muttered, he would not have treated me this way. Hoping to help her, a Swiss minister named Dr. Cesar Milan visited the Elliots on May 9, 1822. Over dinner, Charlotte lost her temper and railed against God and family in a violent outburst. Her embarrassed family left the room, and Dr. Milan, left alone with her, stared at her across the table. He said, you are tired of yourself, aren't you? At length, he continued. You are holding to your hate and anger because you have nothing else in the world to cling to. Consequently, you have become sour, bitter, and resentful. What is the cure, said Charlotte? The fate you are trying to despise. That's the cure. The fate you're trying to despise. As they talked, Charlotte softened. If I want to become a Christian, she said, and to share the peace and joy you possess, what would I do? You would give yourself to God just as you are now with your fightings and fears, hates, loves, and prides, and shame. Just as you are now with all your fightings, fears, hates, and love, pride, and shame. I will come to God just as I am. Is that right? Charlotte did come just as she was. Her heart was changed that day. 
As time passed, she found and claimed John 6.37 as a special verse for her. He who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Several years later, her brother, Reverend Henry Elliott, was raising funds for a school for the children of poor clergymen. Charlotte wrote a poem, and it was printed and sold across England. The leaflet said, Soul for the benefit of St. Margaret's Hall, Brighton. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Underneath Charlotte's poem, which has since become the most famous invitational hymn in history. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou didst me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come to thee. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, wonderful. Our next story is found way over here, somewhere. Number 23. It says, in the early days of the Nazi denomination of Europe, the British Parliament still insisting on taking their weekends for leisure. Britain's ruling class left London for their country estates and didn't want to be bothered. It created no small problem for crucial decisions could not be made in crisis because those in authority were unavailable. Winston Churchill Frustrated, frustrated beyond words, complained that Britain's rulers continue to take its weekends in the country while Hitler takes his countries in the weekends. I often thought of that when wishing more of our church members would take the Lord's Day more seriously. According to a recent poll, only 60% of all born-again Christians are in church on any given Sunday. 40% are AWOL. When we neglect God's business on Sunday to pursue our own leisure, it gives Satan a free hand. Our bodies and souls are supposed to work six days and to rest on the seventh. We cannot persistently violate that law without breaking down at some point, either physically, emotionally, or in family relationships. The British statement William Wilberforce once jotted down on his journal about two political friends who committed suicide. With peaceful Sundays, the strings would never have snapped as they did from overtension. Our greatest, our great-grandparents call it the Holy Sabbath, said one observer. Our grandparents called it the Lord's Day. Our parents called it Sunday, and we called it the weekend. Someone else wrote, one generation called it a holy day, the next a holiday, to the next it was a hollow day. 
I once heard Leslie Flynn liken the Sabbath to seven unmarried brothers who lived together in a large house. Six went out to work each day, but one stayed home. He had the place all lit up when the other six arrived home from work. He also had the house warm, and most importantly, he had a delicious full-course dinner ready for his hungry brothers. One day, the six brothers became unrestful and decided that the one that had been staying home should go to work too. It's not fair, they cried, for the one to stay home while the others slave hard at a job. But when they all came home the first night, there was no light, nor was there any warmth, and worst of all, there was no hearty dinner awaiting them. And the next night, the same thing. Darkness, cold, hunger. They soon went back to their former arrangements. It is the day of rest and worship that keeps the other six bright, warm, and nourishing, said Flynn. When we desecrate the Lord's day, we only hurt ourselves. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful story. Our next story is Not a Single Soul. Number 24. Alan Francis Gardner grew up in a Christian home, took to sea, and achieved a successful British naval career with little thought for God. But in 1822, he fell ill and had to reevaluate his life. He scribbled in his journal, After years of ingratitude, unbelief, blasphemy, and rebellion, have I at last been melted. Alice, how, how slow, how reluctant I had been to admit the heavenly guest who stood knocking without. He was converted, and he soon began thinking about missions. Traveling around the world had given Captain Gardner a glimpse of the need for missionaries, and he gave himself for the task. Leaving England for South America, he hoped to minister among the Aronacanian or Mapuche Indians of southern Chile. Government interference and inter-tribal fighting forced him back to England. Three years later, he was at it again, visiting the Falcons this time and investigating the possibility of taking the gospel to the islands of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. Sensing opportunity at hand, Gardner returned to England and on July 4, 1844, established a small organization called the Patagonian Missionary Society. He wrote, I have made up my mind to go back to South America and leave no stone unturned, no effort untried, no establish, to establish a mission among the aboriginal tribes. While well, God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. Gardner visited South America a third time, but his efforts were again thwarted by inter-tribal fighting and governmental interference. The land being strongly Catholic, intolerant to Protestant ministers, he returned to England, recruited six missionaries, and set a sail for Tierra de Fuego. But all seven men died of disease, starvation, and exposure on Picton Island. 
Gardner, the last to die, dated his final journal, journal entry on September 5, 1851. Good, good and marvelous are the loving kindness of my gracious God unto me. He has preserved me hitherto and for four days, although without bodily food, without any feelings of hunger or thirst. Captain Alan Gardner died without seeing a single soul saved among those whom he was most burdened. But he lit a fire which has never gone out. His South American Mission Society, as it came to be called, has been sending missionaries and saving souls for over 150 years. Our next story is, and our last, is number 26, A Dangerous Position. James Chalmers was a carefree, high-spirited Scottish boy. I dearly love adventure, he later said, and a dangerous position was exhilarating. Perhaps that's why he listened carefully one Sunday when his minister read a letter from missionaries in Fiji. The preacher's tears in his eyes added, I wonder if there's a boy here who will, be, will by and by bring the gospel to the cannibals. Young James said quietly, I will, and he wasn't even yet converted. In 1866, having been converted and trained, he sailed for the Pacific as a Presbyterian missionary. Chalmers had a way with people. It was in his presence, his carriage, his eyes, his voice, a friend wrote. There was something almost hypnotic about him. His perfect composure, his judgment and tact and fearless brought him through a hundred difficulties. Robert Louis Stenson, who didn't like the missionaries until he met Chalmers, said, He is a rowdy, but he is a hero. You can't worry me of that fella. He took me fairly by storm. In 1877, Chalmers sailed on to New Guinea. His ministry was successful. Their packed churches replaced feasts of human flesh. But as the years passed, he grew lonely. He was delighted when young Oliver Tompkins came to join him in 1901. The two men decided to explore a new, pair, new part of the island, on, and on Easter Sunday, they sailed alongside a new village. The next morning, April 8, 1901, Chalmers and Tompkins went ashore. They were never seen again. A rescue party soon learned that the men had been clubbed to death, chopped to pieces, cooked, and eaten. News flashed around the world. I cannot believe it, exclaimed Dr. Joseph Parker from the pulpit of London's famous city temple. I don't want to believe it. Such a mystery of providence makes it hard for a strained faith to recover. Yet Jesus was murdered. Paul was murdered. Many missionaries have been murdered. When I think of that side of that case, I cannot but feel that our honored and noble-minded friend has joined a great assembly. God loves carefree, high-spirited youngsters who have a hankering for adventure. You never know what he may do with them. Amen. And that's the last reading of more real stories for the soul. Thank you. God bless you.